Good morning, Redeeming Grace. It's good to see you on this Lord's Day that he has given us to be together. I want to encourage you to take your Bibles now and turn to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. Last week we began a new series, an eight-week series we're calling The Big Picture. And we're working our way from the beginning to the end, or at least from creation to new creation. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking eight weeks from beginning to end, and you're just on Genesis 3. How's that going to work? Well, we're going to start skipping quite a bit here beginning next week. But again, Genesis 1, 2, and 3 really lay a critical foundation for us to understand exactly God's plan of redemption in his grand narrative of how he brings about his work of grace in the world. And so Genesis chapter 3 is our passage this morning. Uh, we're going to read the whole chapter. And so if you find your way there, uh, pretty easy to find. First book of the Bible, third chapter of the Bible, and uh, right there at the very beginning. And so as we turn our hearts and our minds to God's Word, let's do that now. And let's begin. You can follow along as I read, beginning in verse 1 of Genesis chapter 3. This is the Word of the Lord. We read, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you should go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I'll surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you were dust, and to dust you shall return." The man called his, wife, the, called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. 
Then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he should reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Let's pray together. Father, we ask for your spirit to come and give us understanding of this, your word. Father, would you remove distractions from us and would you help us to feel the weight and burden of sin? Lord, would you help us to understand just what went wrong with this world? And Father, in the midst of that, would you give us hope? Lord, we ask now that you would clarify our understanding and convict our hearts and bring about your work and your will in our lives for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we saw from last week in Genesis 1 and 2, God creates a world that is good, indeed very good, and yet we all instinctively know that something now is wrong with the world. Creation was originally marked by order, goodness, beauty, perfect unity between the man and the woman, between man and God, between man and creation. And yet now, what we know is chaos and evil, a world filled with brokenness and depravity. Personally, we see it in our own lives, don't we, as we struggle with things like pride and anger and lust and greed, just human brokenness. We see it globally as we deal with disease and natural disasters, childhood cancer, human trafficking, racial racial prejudice, endless shootings, and so much more. Just think how often you experienced these very things this very week alone. The world we saw last week from Genesis 1 and 2 is not the world we know today. We come to Genesis chapter 3, we have a change, don't we? We have a change from a world that is created good to a world that is now created good but now fallen. And we see how the entrance of sin into the world brings about devastation. Genesis 3 is a very important chapter in the Bible because it tells us clearly what went wrong with the world. When you and I experience the the reality of, of, of sin and chaos and devastation and death and all that we experience today, all that we experience that is so wrong, Genesis 3 gives us the ultimate answer of what went wrong and how it went down. But even in the midst of that, The Lord, by his grace, still gives us a glimmer of hope. The Bible doesn't end in Genesis 3, does it? We have yet an entire story, an entire narrative to follow in how God is going to bring about this work of redemption. But the story of the fall, not the season, but the fall into sin, begins right here in Eden. 
God created a world that is very good. He made Adam and Eve. He put them in this perfect world, in a perfect relationship with perfect unity between themselves and God. This, this great world that God made as exactly as how it was meant to be. He gave them everything they needed. He made them in his image and he put them in charge of his creation as stewards of his creation. Gave them each other to live in a perfect relationship to themselves and to God. They had immense freedom in a perfect world with only one commandment. You should not eat of this one tree. But in came the serpent, as we see here in Genesis chapter 3, and tempted them to act against the very command God had given. And as a result of their decision, no longer was the creation blessed as good, it was now cursed. No longer was there the bliss of perfection and eternal life, there was destruction and death. And so as we consider the reality of this chapter and what it has to teach us about the entrance of sin and depravity into the world, we're gonna see really three critical moments that leads to this result. We're gonna walk through this chapter and we're gonna see three critical moments, three steps if you will. We're gonna see the deception between the serpent and Eve in particular, and Adam's there as well. We're gonna see the decision and how that leads to devastation. The deception, the decision, and devastation. We're gonna begin point number one with the deception. See that here in verses one through five. As we go from Genesis two into Genesis three, Really, it's kind of abrupt, isn't it? You go from this beautiful creation, and all of a sudden, in Genesis 3 now, we read, now the serpent. So there's a serpent. We're told more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. The serpent in itself was a creation of the Lord. All of a sudden, a serpent appears, and a serpent speaks. There's a lot of unanswered questions we have here because a lot, of, a lot of questions get raised. Well, where'd this serpent come from? How long had it been there? Why is it talking? All of these things, what does it mean by crafty? There's a lot of questions that we have that, that we want answered. But I think one of the main points and the purposes of this passage is, is on the entrance of sin into the world and its ultimate impact on humanity. In one sense, what unfolds here in Genesis chapter 3 is the lens through which we will read everything else that we will have in the book, in, in, in the scripture. If, you don't, if you're not reading the world in which we live today through Genesis 3 lenses, you're not going to understand the fullness of God's grace and redemption. If you do not get Genesis 3, you will not get John 3. So Genesis chapter three is absolutely foundational, absolutely essential to our understanding of how God's good, perfect world went so terribly wrong and God in his marvelous grace and how he's brought about this work of redemption despite, despite our, our failure. Genesis three explains broadly why this world is marked so much by so much pain and so much struggle, so much suffering Every pain, every trial, every grief you bear has its roots in Genesis chapter three. Everything. Before we press forward, 
and, and, and see exactly how, how this unfolds, it's important to remember, as we saw last week in the creation account, that God's word was the very source for everything Adam and Eve enjoyed. It was God's word that creation became a reality. God spoke and it was, right? It's repeated time and time again in Genesis 1. God spoke and it was so. And so God's word is the very source by which Adam and Eve enjoyed the creation, the, the very source by which they enjoyed their own existence and their own relationship. Their very life was dependent on God's word. God's voice was the only voice they knew. But then we come to Genesis 3. And now we have another voice that speaks. The voice of the serpent. We know later on in scripture that Satan is attributed to the one being behind this and behind the serpent. And it's the word of the serpent that now stands in direct opposition to the very word that was the source of Adam and Eve's life and well-being. And what we find here in Genesis 3, and this is important, is that the very first dilemma, major dilemma that Adam and Eve faced in the garden was, was this, whose word are they going to believe? Am I going to believe God's word the very source of my life and good, or am I going to believe another word, the word of the serpent? Several tactics that the serpent takes in tempting the couple to turn from God's word. I wanna walk with you through them. Three things I want us to see here as we move forward into the text. First of all, we see how God's word was questioned. Remember, Genesis 1 and 2, Adam and Eve are established by and sustained by God's word, and now it's the very word of God that is being questioned, called into question. Look at verse 1 of chapter 3. The serpent's there, and then it says, He said to the woman, did God actually say? Did God actually say? Notice he doesn't directly deny at this point. He doesn't directly deny God's word. He simply calls it into question. He just simply raises a question. Did God actually say? What he does here is subtle but very significant. He introduces the assumption that God's word can now be subject to our assessment and evaluation. You see that in the text? Now there's this assumption that that the serpent introduces that that God's word, the very word by which everything exists and is sustained, can now be evaluated by us. This is important because the decision that Adam and Eve faced first was not whether they would eat of the tree, but whether or not they would believe God. Brothers and sisters, isn't that really the root of any temptation or sin that we face today? At the end of the day, is that not at the core of what we're dealing with in our own temptations and our own sins? Am I going to take God at his word and know that what he has for me is ultimately good and wise and glorious? Or am I going to believe another word and take it into my own hands and subject God's word to my own authority or the authority of another. Am I gonna take him at his word or 
or is his word up for my assessment and my revision? See, this is a struggle we often face. Will God in his word be the authority or will his word now become a lesser authority under other authorities? It's an interesting tactic that the serpent takes. You know, Satan doesn't come right out here and demand their allegiance, does he? He doesn't just come out and say, forget God, follow me. He just simply raises a question. Did God actually say this? Did God actually say what you think he said? He merely cast doubt into Eve's mind as to whether or not God could be trusted. So the first thing that we say, the, the, the first tactic that we see is God's word is being questioned, but let's, let's look at tactic number two, God's word is now revised. Look a little closer at what happens. And we need to contrast what God originally said with what Satan or the serpent says and with Eve's response. I want you to see this. God says, if we go back to chapter two, let's go back to chapter two, important part we need to see here to connect the dots. So if you look at verse 15, so this is creation, God rests on the seventh day and now they go back in chapter two and, and begin to explain more fully exactly, especially the responsibility of the man and the woman. But I wanna begin in verse 15 says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden. You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This is what the Lord says, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the one you shall not eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. And so now come back to chapter three, verses one and two, where Satan through the serpent says, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? You see the revision, the change? God said, you can eat of every tree in the garden, but one, and Satan says, did God really say, you can't eat of any of the trees in the garden? He totally undermines and distorts God's generosity. He begins to, to plant within their minds, especially Eve at this point, the, 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 the doubt of whether or not God's word can be trusted and the doubt of whether or not God is truly good. But Eve responds, we see that. The woman said to the serpent, verse two, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. So if you read that at first glimpse, she's like, okay, she, so far so good, Eve, not so fast. Eve also revises God's word. Look at it again. Notice what she says. We may eat of the fruit of the trees, generally speaking. She doesn't say all the trees, but one, just of the trees in general. So that's a subtle shift. But notice what she adds. She says, you shall, God said this, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. God never said that. God never said, neither shall you touch it, did he? He only said, eat of all of the trees in the garden, except the one. And Eve is now revising God's word. Notice what she does. First of all, she minimizes the provision of God. It's not every tree, but the one, but just of the trees in general. So she generalizes it. So she, in essence, minimizes God's provision for her, but notice what she also does. She maximizes the strictness of God, adding to his command, neither shall you touch it. 
So by the time we get to verse three, three verses into this, we're not even dealing with the original command that God gave them in Genesis two. We're dealing with a revised version of it. One that Satan has twisted and one that Eve has, has subtly changed herself. Brothers and sisters, how often we do this as well. We take a clear teaching or a command of the Bible and we rework it a bit, don't we? So it becomes a little bit more palatable or something that justifies our own actions. This is a good word of warning here too, it's just as a side note really, a good word of warning to us that, that really we're dealing with two dangers that we need to be quick to avoid when we're dealing with God's word. Danger number one, overstating the scripture, saying more than it actually says, that's legalism. It's what Eve does, she adds to it, she says more than God's word said. So we need to be warned about that, 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 that that's a tendency for many Christians today is, is that they want to define morality in terms that they can understand. So they go beyond the Bible and they begin coming up with lists of do's and don'ts, adding to the scripture. So overstating what the Bible says, saying more than it actually says, which is legalism. Or the other danger is understating the scripture. Not, not saying what it actually says, conveniently ignoring its clear teaching. We do this all the time. We either add to it or we, we don't hold it up to the fullness of what it says. But listen, friends, God's word never needs revising. iPhone 11 came out this week. Some of you excited about that? Some of you Android people aren't saved yet, but some of us are excited about the, the iPhone 11, right? There's never gonna be a Bible 11. There's never gonna be another update or another upgrade of the scriptures. God has given us all that we need for life and godliness in his perfect word. And his word never needs revising, never needs updating, all, it never needs improving, it never needs some new technology to make it better. But what we have here is the, is the sufficiency of scripture, God's word taken for what he said for our good. It never needs adjusting for our circumstances. But that's exactly what happens here as his word gets revised. So God's word is questioned, then it's revised, and then it's denied. The serpent ramps things up here in verse four. He kinda, but what you see here is the serpent sees that he's, he's kinda got Eve kinda on the edge now. And so he goes in full attack mode, he goes in hard. Notice verse four, so, so she, she responds, yes, God said this, but revises it a bit, but the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. No longer a question, but a statement. You shall not surely die. Basically what he does here is he calls God a liar. He questions God's goodness and implies that God is somehow withholding from them. And then he seals the deal, so to speak, highlighting the consequence of, of, of taking the fruit. He says, they will know that at this point, if you take, he knows that you're gonna know good and evil and, and you're gonna become like him. Notice the careful way that the serpent speaks to Eve, by the way. He only speaks of what Eve would gain, but never mentions what she would lose. At this point, no fruit had been taken Fruit is still on the tree, 
But as many have pointed out, the sin of eating the forbidden fruit was probably not technically the first sin. You see, long before she had reached for the fruit, God had had been dethroned in her heart before the fruit ever entered her mouth. His word had been denied, and therefore she took action, and so did Adam. In his book, God's Big Picture, Vaughn Roberts says, the knowledge of good and evil refers not simply to knowing what is right and wrong, but rather deciding what is right and wrong. Their sin is that of law-making, not just law-breaking. They broke God's command. They had broken his law by making their own. That's the root issue at hand here, isn't it? It's idolatry. Idolatry. Whenever we want something more than God himself, it becomes an idol of our heart. We want, in essence, to be God. And while we all live in a fallen state now, in a fallen world, we still face the same question that Adam and Eve faced. Whose word are we going to trust? By whose authority will we live out our lives? Is it going to be God's word and God's authority, or are we going to to somehow subject him to our authority and our word, or the word of something or someone else? So you see the deception, and it all hinges on whether or not God's word can be trusted. Let's move secondly to the decision. We see that here, verse 6 and 7. So so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. What we see from verse 5 to verse 6 is that God now being dethroned in the couple's heart Having abandoned his authority, both take the fruit and they eat. Eve is deceived by the serpent. The scripture makes that clear. And Adam was there the entire time. I think it's important to notice as well, as as a lot of scholars have pointed out, that every time the serpent is speaking to Eve, you, you don't see it in the English because English is all messed up, but he says you, and it's a plural you. Notice the progression as Adam and Eve break the only commandment that God had given them. She saw the tree was good for food, a delight to her eyes, desired to make one wise, and she took and ate, and she gave some to her husband, and he ate. They do the unthinkable. They conclude God can't be taken at his word, and they break his commands. Eve was deceived by the serpent and took the fruit, but Adam, whom the scripture makes clear was not deceived, follows her lead and eats without question and without protest. Eve sinned through the deception of the serpent, but Adam sinned willfully with eyes fully open to the reality of what was going on around them. You see his passiveness here. And they seek to put themselves in the place of God. Friends, every decision to sin since then has the same trait. We act as if God's ways are not good enough for us. And we often make decisions and live out our lives as though his word is not sufficient. 
And we will oftentimes seek to put ourselves in the place of authority and think, well, this is going to be good. This is going to be what I need. This is going to be what, what makes me ultimately happy when God has defined what ultimately makes us happy. The book called Biblical Theology, it's a book uh, written by Michael Lawrence. <clears throat> he says, not, not content to be mere creatures, speaking of Adam and Eve, not content to be mere creatures, not content to have mere relationship with God, reflecting back to God his glory, Adam and Eve desired to be like God. This was not simple disobedience. As the story continues, we recognize their desire as idolatry, the substitution of the creature for the creator as the object of our loyalty, desire, and worship. And with every mini fall after that, we see the same thing. From Babel to golden calves, from Moses' disobedience to David's fall, we see the desire to set our, rule, our own rules and reach for our own glory. The fall is a historical event, but it's also the pattern of our lives. The decision, they took an eat, they took an eight, but it also leads to a consequence, as God said it would, the devastation. And that's what we're gonna find in really the rest of the chapter, verses eight through 24. So beginning in verse seven, six, seven, we no longer have a good creation. Sin had entered the world and everything is now impacted by it. The world is now fallen. Not just Adam and Eve, but the entirety of the cosmos. And the impact, the impact that this would have would be comprehensive. It would be immediate and comprehensive. It would be massive. And I want us to see at least three consequences here in the text. You're going to see it unfold throughout the rest of Scripture. But three consequences here of Adam and Eve's rebellion against God that unfold. First of all, we see this. When sin enters the world, sin brings shame. Sin brings shame. In verses seven through 10, specifically in verse seven, we see Adam and Eve now realize they were naked. They had not realized that before. There was no shame before the fall. It was a perfect world, a perfect environment. They realized something's wrong, we're now naked. And so what they do is they make fig leaves so they could have coverings. Notice that, notice what they're doing. They're taking their new reality now into their own hands, a, a reality that they themselves got, them, got themselves into. Now they're taking this, this, this fall into their own hands and trying to come up with a way to cover up their sin. What we see here is really the first attempt of, of, of self-righteousness or works righteousness, we could say. This is the first attempt of works righteousness that you find in the Bible, seeking to try to take into your own hands an attempt to make yourself right now before God. Nakedness, we know, especially from the Hebrew culture, indicates shame. And for the first time in their lives, they felt shame. Imagine that, the very, the very thing they sought, knowledge of good and evil, the very thing that they thought and now were convinced in their minds would be ultimately good for them was the very thing that would bring shame into their lives and cause them to flee and try to hide from the Lord. They were afraid of God. They had never been afraid of him before. 
And now all of a sudden they were fearful of their very creator. And even when they're confronted, as we see in verses eight and following, when they're confronted, the blame game begins to happen, doesn't it? The Lord God calls out to them, where are you? And he says, I heard the sound of you. I was afraid because I was naked. I hid myself. He said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, notice here's the blame game. The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit and I ate. What does Adam do? He doesn't take responsibility. He doesn't stand accountable for his own sin. He says, the woman you gave me. He blames Eve, but he goes further than that. He blames God. The woman you gave me. As if God, had you not given me her, all would be well. So he blames God for the fall. And Eve responds and blames the serpent. So the Lord says to the woman, what is this you have done? The, serp- the woman says, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Neither of them stand accountable for their own sin. Neither of them take responsibility for their own failure at this point. They both blame something or someone else for the reality that they were now experiencing. This is what happens with sin. I don't have to tell you this. You see it all the time. You see it in your own heart. You see it in the world. Sin is never our fault, is it? When things go wrong or when things happen that unrighteousness is is reality or sin is, is reality, it's never our fault. We want to seek to blame others. We want to seek to blame circumstances or do whatever we can to evade some kind of responsibility or accountability for our sin. I would have, you know, had circumstances been different, I wouldn't have had to do this. Or you, you know, had you not said that, I wouldn't have responded angrily. I mean, just, just all, all the time we, we, see, we see this happening. You certainly can see it in the lives of children, but, but friends, don't pick on the kids. They just got it after you. They see how we shift the blame or come up with some justifiable reason as to why we acted in the way we did. Instead of saying, you know what, I failed. I've, I've, I've messed up, I sinned, I was wrong. It's always pride that gets in the way of wanting to kind of downplay our own fault and make it somehow the fault of someone or something else. Sin shames us. But number two, sin brings a curse. As a response to the rebellion of Adam and Eve, God responds with cursing and judgment. Notice in verses 14 and 15, we see the serpent is cursed. Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly shall you go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heal. So the serpent is cursed. Upon his belly he shall go. This is a picture of humiliation. And now there's going to be enmity between him and the woman. Notice just a bit before this, there was an alliance between him and the woman against God, and now they're going to be at odds against each other. Enmity. And then the woman in verse 16, this is what the Lord says to her, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. This is not just pain in the delivery, but pain in the child rearing generally. It's going to be a taxing and difficult time. Not only that, 
Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. There's going to be conflict in the home. Instead of enjoying the one flesh union that displayed a beautiful complementarity, she now will have a desire to dominate and dictate. And then we see the man in verse 17 through 19. Pain in working the ground. We know from last week that God created work as good. Work is not a part of the fall. It's a good creation of God. We were all created to work. That's why laziness is a sin. I'm not talking about those who may be unable to work, but we're called to, to cultivate. We're called to use our lives as stewards as, as God has intended. But now this work is frustrated. The ground is cursed, and the earthly labor by which Adam would now engage in was, is going to be very difficult. Notice, by the way, just in this passage, just a little side note, that it's only the serpent and the ground that are cursed. The text doesn't say that Adam and Eve were directly cursed, but they would certainly experience the full effects of the curse in this world. Before sin, they only knew peace and joy and satisfaction in a perfect world with perfect union with God. Now all that would change. The good they had known would now be marred by struggle, by pain, by tragedy, by trial, and ultimately death. Every part of human life is broken and affected and impacted by sin. Every thought, every desire, every motive, every action, everything that we do in this world is now impacted by this reality of a world gone radically wrong. The world is under a curse. That's why creation groans and awaits that great day of redemption. But not only that, sin brings separation. See in verses 20 through 24, the man calls his wife Eve because she's the mother of all living. We're, we're told, by the way, that back in chapter 2, verse 17, that in the day you eat of the fruit, you shall surely die. They don't immediately die. We know that that's, they're going to die. Death now enters the world, and that's a reality. So I think there's this aspect of spiritual death or now dead in sin, as Ephesians 2, verse 1 talks about, but there's also going to be the physical reality of death. It's a result of sin and a result of the fall. The Lord God made for Adam and Eve his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like us, and knowing good and evil, now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God will send him out of the garden of Eden to work from the ground which he was taken. He drove out the man, and, the east of the, at, the, and at the east of the garden he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. One of the last things we see in this chapter is that Adam and Eve are now banished from the garden, from the beauty and of, of God's perfect presence there, they're now banished from the very place they were meant to enjoy and cultivate. And this imagery depicts this, this sobering reality that sin is so much a big deal that it causes a separation between us and God who is holy and righteous and good. Sin causes us to be separated from the fullness of God's presence and the fullness of God's blessings. They had been given everything good, everything they could have imagined, and in a moment, it was all gone. And we've inherited the very same judgments and sentence that they were given. Friends, this is how, this is how it happened. 
the pain, the trials, the, suf the, the suffering, the temptation, the struggle that you and I encounter on a regular daily basis has its roots right here in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 1 and 2 was a world of how it meant to be. God created this world. It was good. It was glorious. It was perfect. It was beautiful. It was amazing. This is how it was meant to be. In Genesis 3, all that is now gone. A perfect world, a perfect couple living in perfect communion with the Lord. Having a perfect rule over creation, gone. As we said last week, they were God's people living in God's place under God's rule. And now they had rejected it. And as we will see throughout the rest of Scripture, we know that the story of Eden is our story as well. Adam's sin is our sin. His guilt is our guilt. His corruption and rebellion, our corruption and our rebellion. Adam's fall is the fall of the entire human race. And this is what happens here in Genesis 3. Genesis 3 confronts us with the fact that we are all fallen as sinners and we desperately need rescuing. But praise God, the Bible doesn't end in Genesis chapter 3. As dark and as bad as things came out of Eden, as dark and as bad as Genesis 3 is, there's still a glimmer of light here. There's still a glimmer of hope right here in the text. In the midst of all of this sin, in the midst of all of the depravity that we see here, we see hope. We see, we see a, a, a glimpse of hope that's going to, to, to foreshadow what was to come. Ultimately, in the person of Jesus Christ. See it a couple times here. You see it in, back in verse 15. He says, I will put, this is a cursing the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head or crush, same word, and you shall bruise his heel. It's laying the foundation of someone who would come from the woman one day, who would land a crushing blow to the head of this serpent. Though he might bruise the heel of this one, this one would land a crushing blow to the head of the serpent. And even though there will be a long struggle between the woman's seed and the serpent, there would come a time when the seed of the woman would in fact come and crush and do away with the serpent. Even in verse 21, we see a little glimpse here as well as, as God finishes his judgment of Adam and Eve, he provides them, notice what he does, a couple of things. There's the implication of that there will continue to be life. Eve is now the mother of all living. Death is not going to enter immediately and that be the end of the human race. The fact that you and I are living today is a testimony of God's grace that he continued to allow there to be a human race to populate. We know that sin and death are related as a result of this fall. But right here, we see God do something. In verse 21, the Lord God made for Adam and Eve garments, not of fig leaves, but of skins from animals, implying there that something had to die in the place of this couple to cover their sin. It's not a full-orbed teaching of the atonement right here, but it's laying a picture. It's laying a foundation of what would come, the need for something to be sacrificed on our behalf. Friends, what a story. What a story that's about to unfold moving forward. In the moments, in the very moments of Adam and Eve's fall, 
in the very moment that God's word is rejected, God's word still speaks. And God's word in the midst of their rebellion grants hope. Even though depravity and darkness had entered, it's not the end of the story. You know, it's interesting. I heard someone once say that while take and eat are now verbs of guilt and shame, the very same words, take and eat, would later be words of hope and salvation. See, when the serpent-crushing Savior would arrive, he'd be gathered in an upper room with his disciples, and he would say, take and eat. But this time, they would not be verbs of condemnation. These are words pointing to salvation, to a broken body and, a sh and shed blood that would be the covering for our unrighteousness and the covering for our sin. And no longer would take and eat be words of condemnation, they would be words of hope. As Adam and Eve took of the tree and they ate, the consequences would be drastic. But brothers and sisters, the good news is there is a way back to Eden and it comes through a different tree, a tree upon which our savior hung and died, shedding his blood to cover our sins once and for all. And it's that tree that gives you hope and it's that tree that you need to look to if you are to be saved and have any hope of redemption and rescue. This is how God planned it, this is how God did it. He accomplished our salvation through the, through the dying of his son on a tree for our sins. And while we may have taken from a different tree, God provided a savior on another tree so that you and I can have the fullness of joy, so that you and I can make our way back to Eden and, and experience the fullness and the gladness and the, of the hope that we have in perfect communion with a perfect God. See, paradise was lost on that day, but not for good. It was lost, but not for good. There is still hope because God is gracious and God has provided. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for showing us the, Lord, thank you for showing us the devastation. Lord, we wouldn't even see it were it not for you graciously revealing it to us. Father, we, we think we're fine. We think all is well. We think things are, are good, that we can somehow just make our way through this life. We know it's messed up. We know something's wrong. But Lord, oftentimes we, we still revert back to our, our sense of thinking somehow we can bring ourselves through it. But Lord, the reality is that this world has fallen, this world is broken so badly that we would never be able to rescue ourselves from it. Father, we realize that we have fallen short of your glory. We have fallen short because we have broken your commands. And Lord, you have every right to condemn us. You have every right because you are good and holy and true. You have every right to judge us and to hold us accountable for the rebellion of our own hearts. But God, you are gracious. And you sent your one and only son to be the one who would come and bring us hope and bring us life 
even though we deserve death. Father, my prayer is that for those who may be here today and may have not have trusted in you, not have found rescue, God, would you speak to them this morning and would you help them to see, even from a dark passage like Genesis 3, that God, you have provided, ultimately through your son, Jesus Christ, the redemption that we all need. And Father, would you call them to yourself and help them to respond by turning from their sin and putting their complete trust in you. Father, as your people, would you encourage us that when times get difficult and times are trying and times are just filled with grief and suffering and turmoil and chaos and devastation and Lord, we just, we, we, would you help us not to despair? But God, would you remind us that though we've been banished from Eden, it's not for long because we have a good and loving Savior. Father, would you give us hope this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.